you are not going to get funded in this day and age with a PowerPoint. You're not going to get funded to build an MVP. I'm Kelly Hoey, host of Broadmic. I speak with the most accomplished entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders about the issues that matter in building a business. You will get the inspiration as well as the picks and shovels you need to become a better entrepreneur. Be inspired, take action, think broad. Today, I have Adam Quinton in the studio. Adam is founder and CEO of Lucas Point Ventures and an active investor in and advisor to early stage companies. His investments include The Muse, Rap Media, Venue Book, Hire an Esquire, Pinks and Greens, Validately, and Snaps. Adam and I will chat about his outspoken and unwavering support for female entrepreneurs and for calling out the bias that exists among Silicon Valley venture capitalists, as well as his advice for female founders. Welcome, Adam. Great to be here, Kelly. There's a, I'm going to say a, lo- a lot of fun topics you and I um, get to uh, discuss, but let's start with this. You started on Wall Street. Um, are you a feminist? I got asked that before, and I had to think about it, and uh, I think I'm actually a radical feminist. <laughs> Not just a feminist, a radical feminist. And how the heck did that happen? Uh, it's a good question. I, I guess it came upon me over a period of time, and a former colleague of mine who looked into the people in the company that I was working with at the time looked at guys who she thought were male an- allies, and she looked into whether like they all had daughters or whether there was something like that. And of the group that she looked at, she found that they all had one thing in common, which was that they all had an innate sense of fairness. And I'm quite happy if somebody describes me as having an innate sense of fairness. And if you're in high finance, if you're in small company finance, basically it isn't hard to work out. There's a lot of things going on that ain't that fair. I like that with the innate sense of fairness, because sometimes when we um, I don't know. So those moments when some men sort of had their come to Jesus moments with when they recognize that uh, women haven't been treated fairly, it's because, you know, they have a daughter. It just, I don't know, there's something about it that seems lame to me. So mm-hmm. I, I like this idea of, of innate sense of, mm-hmm. uh, of fairness. Um, so what inspired you to go from financial services to becoming an angel investor? So I left financial services in 2010. And I'd been involved for a pretty long time and, you know, frankly, was burnt out and wanted to do something different, but I wasn't quite sure what it was. And I wouldn't claim that I went into angel investing in a thoughtful, intentional way because I did not. I basically got into it sort of by accident. A friend of mine, former colleague, um, mentioned to me that they were involved with an angel group and maybe I should come along and maybe it was sort of interesting. And I went along and like, here I am. It's most of what I do now. Oh, I'm, say, I, I'm laughing because I think in some ways, if we had thought about it, you know, thinking you and I have been very parallel in many mm. ways in our involvement in the startup community, if we'd actually researched and thought about it more, you're, you know, applying the rigor that to to entering angel investing as you did, you know, to making investments on Wall Street or as I did doing due diligence as a lawyer, we may have hesitated. Um, and I'd probably say for both of us, really getting involved and, and doing it out of 
sense of fairness or this could be interesting or a whole bunch of different reasons has been absolutely, you know, transformational. But importantly, doing it to make money as well. It is investing. Yes. We are doing it to make money. An entirely rational person probably wouldn't do it because they would realize that so many of the things they invest in, unfortunately, are going to go to zero. But I'm doing it to make money personally. Um, and we're going to talk about that because you and I yeah. absolutely come from that same place of why we're investing in uh, female-founded or diverse-founding teams mm-hmm. in terms of uh, this is about, about making money. So let's – you know what? Why don't we just get into that? What is your investment thesis and portfolio strategy? I used to have one, but I realized that when I looked at what I'd invested in – and I've invested in 15 companies now – that the the most important thing – above all others is, you know, who the founder or the founding team is, you know, their vision, their passion, their drive, their energy, all of those good things. So whilst I do genuinely tend to focus on business to print business of enterprise software stuff, the reality is if I look at what I've invested in and I think, why did I do it? It's particularly and, and most importantly because I felt that the founder had something special whatever that was, and it can be a different special for different people, but the founder or founding team had something special that gave them a better-than-average chance of succeeding in a game where the odds are are pretty low for founders. I mean, most startups fail. Yeah, I want to come back to that topic and... and Talk more about that because that's, you know, one of those things as a founder when you hear, oh, saw something special, they're all like, well, what was it? Mm. So I want you to think on that. We'll come back to it. What was um, sort of an aha moment when you looked at the market and said, I'm going to focus on on female-led tech companies? Uh, Well, one in particular was when I realized that the early stage uh, financial environment was an order of magnitude less fair, coming back to that term, than my previous sort of institutional life in banking. So you know, banking is a pretty tough industry for uh, a number of groups of people, particularly women. Um, so you know, I was in an organization where we genuinely worried about the fact that at senior levels, only something like 15% of our uh, folks were women, and we were trying to do things about that. You get into the startup world, and you're thinking, holy moly, Like, can it really be true that only 2.7% of venture-backed companies in the U.S. have women CEOs? Hence my observation that it's an order of magnitude worse, which was pretty shocking to me because I didn't have any experience of early stage before. Um, and it, to my mind, gives the lie to the argument that, that Silicon Valley is a meritocracy. I mean, if it's a meritocracy, you can only justify that by saying that, what is it, like 97% of all companies worthy of getting venture capital are backed by one group of people. So, like, is there something in the chromosomes that makes them sort of uniquely right to be founders of companies that get backing. So the aha moment was really that statistic, the 2.7%, but then the flip side of that statistic, which is probably sort of connected, which is that depending on whose numbers you look at, 94% of VCs are exactly like the people that they're backing, aka guys. And particular types of guys. So, you know, we can probably even unwind some of that stuff as well. All right, let's get into some practical advice because I think that's where things get really helpful. What do you look for when funding a startup? I I guess I look for three things, uh, if I can have three things. Um, I mean, the first one, which is hard to put your finger on sometimes, is 
can the it, whatever the it is, be big? You know, the point being that if you're investing in an early stage company, um, and going back to your point before, you sort of understand the math a little bit. Um, for it to be worth investing in, it's it's got to be pretty big. You've got to generate, you know, depending on how you do the math, something like 30 times return out of your winners to make up for all of your losers. So unless you can be really big, um, and we can talk about what that means, but unless you can be really big, like it's, it's, it's just not worth doing. Um, or it's not what we're looking to do as investors. Yeah, yeah so, as investors. So, yeah, exactly. it's not worth, I don't mean it's it's not worth doing as an investor. And and, and there may be yeah, yeah. And, and, and there may be other investors out exactly. there who want to be co-business owners or they they want to yeah. be there as 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 investors yeah. who are operators. But and and and, and, yeah. and like I, I'm sure right. we'll come to this. It may not be a business that you actually need to get outside capital into anyway. Oh yeah, well that's, we're going to talk about that. So that's another that. that's another topic which I think doesn't get enough like right. coverage, and we can talk about that. So you know, number one, if, if you can't be big as an investor, it's it's not really going to be very appealing. Secondly, although I'm being a little bit hypocritical here because I said actually, really, it's the first thing is you know, like the founding team, the founders. Um, you know, what is their vision? Um, you know, how much energy you have, how much commitment do they have, you know, what insights are they bringing to the problem. Um, so, you know, unless you're big, like the team's irrelevant, but it's sort of the other way around as well. And then the third thing from an investor's point of view is, okay, so I think you can be big and you've got a good team. Like what evidence is there that those first two things are real? By which I mean, um, depending obviously on what stage you're at, it can vary, but are you able in the vernacular to execute? So if you're really, really early, um, maybe you wouldn't have much signs of the fact that, you know, you can execute, you are the right team, and this is a big problem. But the further along you get, the more you have to show that, yes, you are the team that understands this big problem and stuff is happening. And the stuff, obviously, depending on the business you're in, can be dramatically different um, in terms of what it is. So there's no easy answer to that part of it. But like big team relevant, you know, to your scale, relevant to your sort of um, uh, life cycle or whatever traction. Those are the things. But every time I think of what I invested in, you know, really, it was the team that was the most important. Yeah, it's almost like the size, like the problem and the size of the market kind of gets you to the threshold. Um, Because, you know, if someone was opening up, you know, for you and I, the way we invest, Mm. if they were opening up a restaurant in Greenwich, Connecticut, Mm. we'd say, good luck to you. Let me know when it opens. I'll show up, you know, and have dinner. Not something I invest in, though it could be a very good and lucrative business. Um, So the idea gets you to the doorstep, but it's who that team Mm. is that that, that gets you over, you know, the threshold um, and really into the analysis. And I think the thing that I've learned... And this is just me talking, so it may not be worth anything. But what I've learned is the reason that the team is important is what you invest in today is almost certainly not what's going to exist in three years' time. The point being, you can do as much analysis as you might want to do about this particular opportunity, market size, competition, blah, 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 blah. Um, But the reality is, um, you know, to use the Muhammad Ali quote, like, everybody has a strategy until, you know, you get hit in the face. And in the startup (laughs) context, it's getting... It's getting hit in the face by the reality of, like, the idea that you had. Actually, it doesn't work. People don't want the it. They want something that's sort of like the it or delivered to them in a different way. And my personal example of that is uh, a great company called Snaps, which I invested in several years ago. They've now got this incredible product, which is riding the wave of messaging 
basically creating customizable um, keyboards um, where brand images become emojis. So it's like a really cool marketing play. So people say to me, like, how did you find that? How do you invest in that? And I say, I didn't actually invest in that. I'm like, I'm technically invested in the company, but that's not what I invested in. When I invested in them, they were doing something not completely different, but radically different. And, you know, the other classic example is, you know, Pinterest. The first Pinterest wasn't Pinterest. It became Pinterest. So depending on what you're investing in, if it's successful, the one continuous thing from the it to the new it is the founder. So uh, let's talk. Let's talk money. Um, should all, I mean, I can say all female founders, but should all founders be seeking angel or venture capital? Well, the simple answer is no. Um, and, and being a sort of fact-based person, the facts are something like, you know, something like this, that, you know, there's X hundred thousand companies get started every year in the U.S. Of those, something like 70,000 get angel money, no more than 3,000 get VC money. So of most companies that get founded, none of which ever intended to be really big. So they're, they're really, it's really a sort of false argument in some respects. But, um, you know, the number of people going up that stack gets really very small at the top. And to the extent that I would have one piece of advice around this, it's, it's don't be obsessed about raising money as a validation of what you're doing. There's a lot of instances where, you know, either, you know, I was literally listening to a company talking yesterday and they are able to effectively bootstrap themselves initially by selling some consulting services, which sort of fund the business. And listening to what they, they were doing, it seemed not implausible that they could actually do that to such an extent that they wouldn't need to raise any money from anyone. Now, if they wanted to be really big, really fast and raise boatloads of money, they could do it differently. But there's obviously, you know, a dichotomy there between whether you want to... Uh, uh, you know, as the, the sort of cliche has it, whether you want to be rich or you want to be king or queen, for that matter. Um, so if, particularly if you want to retain control, um, which you may or may not do, that's a personal decision, then, you know, raising money quickly is a way to lose control very quickly. And obviously in a female founder context, you know, the, the sort of classic example is Sarah Blakely found Spanx, you know, gets to a billion dollar company and she's not ready to dime from anyone. So depending on what you're doing, you can do it. And to my point about the like bootstrapping and generating some consultancy revenues, depending on what you're doing, sometimes you can be self-funding. It's going to be a bit slower, but again, ultimately you have more control over your future. So there's no right answer um, to what an individual company should do because uh, it's up to the founder ultimately. But to your specific question, no, not everybody has to raise venture capital um, most founders don't. You definitely um, don't have to raise angel capital for the similar reasons. So think about like whether you're raising the money because you really need it or because you feel some sort of social pressure to do it because like otherwise you're not cool. Right. Well, exactly. There's, there's, I'm thinking of two instances with, with, with female founders that I was talking to and, and they were feeling this pressure to fundraise. And I said to one of them, I said, just kind of stop for a minute here. You probably have – you've been trying to fundraise for a couple of months. You probably have – realistically, and this was raising fundraising in Canada, that you, I said you probably have about another four months that you're going to be actively fundraising to get the final investors or, you know, close this round, do the documentation, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I said to her, so tell me in four months what you could do if you focused all your energy on your business and on sales. And she she explained what she thought she could do. I said to her, sounds to me in that 
amount of customer sales that you've reached the amount you're trying to raise in a fundraise. Like, why don't you just focus on your business? And mm-hmm. I and it's I think it gets to your point. And I and it also could be and you know like your thought on this. We focus so much on this very small area. The sort of what in terms of what people can get in funding. Like, the as you pointed out, the percentage of companies that get angel or VC funding are minuscule, but, you know, they get this outsized amount of our attention. But, you know, how are businesses getting off the ground? They're generating revenue. Um, or they are, you know, being funded by someone's, you know, savings or credit mm-hmm. cards. Um, you know, get down to building a good mm-hmm. business. Um, you know, so... Um, Second that motion. Second, yeah. Second that, get on that one. Um, for those female founders who, you know, you think of Snaps, you think of, you know, Rap Media, The Muse, you know, Hire Squire, um, companies in your portfolio, okay, female founders, um, what advice do you have for female founders of, of companies that should receive mm-hmm. um, outside funding? What should they be doing um, to get meetings with investors? And then any guidance you have for those founders when they're taking meetings with guys who don't have the same innate sense of fairness that you do? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's a pretty uh, sort of open-ended question, and we could have a separate podcast on that. So um, I'll try and be succinct. I guess my key advice would be uh, it's not easy for anybody. I mean, that's slightly untrue because for some people it is too easy. But for male founders and female founders, you know, generally it is pretty tough for everybody. It's hard to tell whether in an individual context there's something about you that that is making it harder for you to raise money than it might otherwise be. It's it's very hard to unpack this. But again, the the fundamental point is hard for everybody. So you know, to the extent that you're a female founder, uh, I don't think it, it's particularly useful to you to overthink your own personal situation, if, if that makes any sense, that um, you've got to be confident about what you're doing, just as any founder does. Um, you've got to be willing to put yourself in front of investors and talk your story. Um, but don't overthink, like, the who you are and what you are. And, you know, to the extent that there's a word that comes to mind there, which um, is a little bit cliched, but it's, you know, be your authentic self. Um, you know, to the point about getting meetings, presenting, there's a lot of dialogue around, um, you know, women present differently from men, generally speaking, not all do, but generally they may have different styles. Um, so, you know, should you present like a guy? You know, some people literally give that as a piece of advice. I think that's that's, that's just not going to work, right? You only present, yeah, I, as, you present as you, right. and if people don't accept the you, Move on. Yeah, I, I often advise, or I have advised uh, female founders, um, not I'm gonna say it's it's not present like a guy, but you get so used to hearing your own pitch because you're delivering it and practicing mm-hmm. it. I'm like, if you've scripted it out, give it to someone else to read, and you sit there as the audience and and receive that information because mm-hmm. all of a sudden you can realize, oh, you know, I got a lot of jargon, or I make these assumptions, mm-hmm. or. I say this word a lot, and until I hear someone else reading it, I don't mm. realize like how uh, vague or annoying or you know whatever mm. you know it may be in in terms of the presentation. Uh, and that, that's one of the benefits, powers, whatever you want to call it, of 
having a co-founder. Like somebody's got to be the boss, ultimately. Somebody's got to be the CEO, if not from day one, and that at some point fairly soon if you're going to raise money. But if, if you have a co-founder or co-founders um, of whatever gender, um, that you have the power of the other in the room with you. The point being, um, like Kelly pitches to Adam, if Kelly has a co-founder who's sitting next to Kelly, who's sort of the proverbial fly on the wall, but they're not the fly on the wall, they're actually like in the thing, and can say, well, you know, that, that, that really didn't go across very well. Like Adam asked that question and like you, you totally flunked that one. Right. You, this is maybe what you should have said. Um, I think it's much more difficult for the solo founder, um, again, whether they're men or, or women, frankly, um, but maybe a little bit more if, if they're women because you don't have that person next to you giving you that objective, hey, that, like, that, that really bombed that particular point. Your answer sucked. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or to, to explain. Or someone else to read the body language of, of the people in your yeah. in the room with. Like, you know, because we do become, we come, become, we, it's like we tell startups they have to get their pitch right and they practice their pitch and they're in accelerators and they're all working on yeah. their pitch. And you're so obsessed with your pitch, you stop and, and, and completely, like you forget to stop and look around and see how, like, what's the communication? How's it being received? Like you're so totally. obsessed in the pitch as opposed to how am I communicating? Yeah. And I'm really mean actually uh, in that what I do often is if, if you know, Kelly's meeting me and Kelly says, I, I'm going to get my laptop out and, I'm, you know, can I go through my pitch? I say, Look, I don't need to do that. You send it me in advance. I read it. I want to ask you some questions or what about this? What about that? So if nothing else, if you did send it to me, I don't always do this. So like maybe I'm being a little whatever, but um, I do at least try and look through it and be respectful of the fact that you sent me something. And if you sent me something that I even looked through for three minutes, you don't need to go through it again. Um, if, if, if I'm going to get use out of the time for me, it's saying, well, like I didn't get the whole go-to-markets thing. Explain that. I didn't, like I understand the problem and what you're doing and where you came from, blah, 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 blah. I get all that, so I want to know about this. And the mean thing about that is now you're totally off kilter, right, because you come in prepared to do this presentation, and now you can't, and it's, oh, my God. Um, but it's part, at least for me as a mean person, um, giving you sort of a test, really, which is like, can, I, you know, are you flexible enough to flip from presentation mode to answering mode? And, you know, are you able to be mentally like, agile around that? You know, can you think, OK, well, he's asking about this. I hadn't thought about that um, because it's very easy to be well coached to your point to do a presentation and I'm not saying you shouldn't do that because oftentimes you do have to give the formal presentation and you should do a good job and you should nail it. But a lot of the time I, I get more value from not listening to the presentation because they do end up being a bit canned and like everybody's got unique market positioning and like everybody's got a competitive chart where you're in the top right hand corner. Like, Who cares? Yeah, <laughs> at this point. Oh, good. You're all in the top right. Find me someone. Yeah, and nobody else is in the top right either. <laughs> Remarkable. So, yeah, no, yeah, find me someone striving for the middle where it's crowded. <laughs> find me that person. Um, <laughs> I just like have to have a laugh on that one. Um, when's a no a no? Oh, that's a very good question. When is a no a no? Um, uh, a no is a no when it's a no. Um, a no is a no when it's a maybe as well. I think that's the more difficult thing. Um, a no is a no when it's come back to me when you've got more traction. Um, I mean, the problem from the founder's point of view, which I have you know a great deal of sympathy with, is um, you know most of the time 
frankly, in speaking as the investor, the investor's self-interest, um, you don't want to be too brutal when you say no, even if it is a no, you know, for obvious reasons. One is, like, I, like, I don't want to offend you. Like, why should I do that? You're trying to do something really hard. I'm, I've got to be respectful of that. Um, you know, the other obvious one is, you know, you could be the next Facebook. I don't know. It doesn't feel like it. But if I piss you off now and you never want to talk to me again, like in a year's time, when it's more obvious you're the next whatever, like I'm totally closed out. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why, like what the hell is the no? What is the partial no? I think if you are fundraising in the moment, um, if it's a no, it's a no. If it's a comeback later, as far as you're concerned at that point in time, it's a no. You know, what I'm what I'm saying there is if you're fundraising in the moment, you have a limited amount of time to meet investors, um, you know, cut your losses. Don't double think, should I go back to him? Should I go back to her? Um, you know, because you can end up doing a lot of wheel spinning. Um, and I, I guess, I you know, I would encourage people to ask the question, so when you say no is, is you know, what do you mean? Um, as I indicated before, what comes back at you might be really quite hard to decipher, but there may be some information content in it that is useful, and you will not get that information content if you don't ask the question. Um, it could be, again, a sort of generic comeback when you've got more traction, whatever that means. But then you can say, well, what does that mean? Like, I, I've got 10 pilots now. What is more traction? 20 pilots and five paying customers. Call them out, on their, call them out on their bullshit. Uh, well, it you know may or may not be bullshit, but at least then you have a data point and you can go back to them. Um, but again, deciphering what is the bullshit and what is not, what is the polite no, it's like it's like, it's like a minefield. So again, particularly when you're fundraising in the moment, if somebody says no, politely just move on and don't worry about it. Because if I can use this phrase, as you all know, Kelly, when you're fundraising, a lot of people tell you your baby is ugly. Right. And you've just got to accept that. And not try and persuade them over and over again that the baby's really the most beautiful one in the world. Um, because if it is in a year's time, they'll come back to you anyway. So, Adam, how do entrepreneurs or other investors, how do they find you? Well, to my point about being mean before, um, it's like a test. If you can't find me, then you've got a problem, frankly. Like, you know, you've you've listened to this podcast. Like, my name is on the materials. Like, Google my name. See what comes up. You will find emails. You'll find Twitter. I'm giving it away now, but um, my point you're is... Not, you're not hiding. I'm, the point is I'm not hiding, and it it frankly amazes me the number of people who you meet at a pitch event or whatever it is who will say, well, how do I find you? Beside the fact that you're like standing in front of me, you found me for God's sake. Um, it's like, like, don't you like the internet? Like, is a big thing, and that like you can find people really easily. Like, whether it's LinkedIn, I've got a blog, I'm on Twitter, um, and the people who like give up at that stage, you know, I'm, I'm I, again, I, I'm sort of happy because it just proves that if you can't even Google my name, I'm, I'm certainly not going to write you a check. That's such a great quote. Um, no, I'm always shocked by the, I mean, the amount of, um, I mean, the qualities you look for in the founder um, and the amount of diligence and persistence they say they put into finding a problem and creating a solution, they need to put in the same amount of energy 
in terms of researching and finding investors. And if you're not doing that, you know, like, exactly, no one's just waiting around. We're not like sitting on a park bench with our checkbooks waiting for some investment to magically land in our our lap um, so we can cut a check. Mm. So, um, all right, now you know. And if you haven't listened to this podcast before talking to Adam, shame on you. All right, let's get to our pay it forward questions, Adam. Um, I ask these of all of our guests. What are your primary sources of information? I'm a Twitter addict, so I suck in a lot of stuff from that. Half of it's actually more than half of it's junk, but I, I use that a lot. How do you discover new information? Did I just say I use Twitter a lot? Yeah. <laughs> what book are you reading? Um, I'm reading The Invention of Science by David Wooten. Wow. Do you have any rituals or habits you swear by? Early to bed, early to rise. Who are the three entrepreneurs or leaders you follow or admire? Uh, the three are, this is obviously totally self-serving. So um, I'm an investor in The Muse and Catherine Minshew and Alex Cavalacos. I can use that as one unit. Um, they're just amazing, doing incredibly well. Um uh, Erica Troutman at Rap Media is is another founder that I've got a lot of respect for, doing incredibly well. And, and both of those, by the way, had the raising as a female founder issue. How do I get around that? And they, they both came through it very well. And then being slightly controversial, um, being a Brit of a certain age, the third one would have to be Margaret Thatcher. Extraordinary leader. Politics, whether it doesn't matter what your politics are, extraordinary leader. Um, what's the best advice you ever received? Uh, when you're good, you're never that good, and when you're bad, you're never that bad. Are there any particular myths you would like to dispel for our listeners? For the founder listeners, it would be this. Uh, You are not going to get funded in this day and age with a PowerPoint. You're not going to get funded to build an MVP. You have to have one built, something that that the, the investor can touch or feel. Investors don't pay for that stuff anymore. What words of advice would you give to listeners about taking risks and closing the confidence gap? Uh, Just put your Nike t-shirt on and just do it. What does think broad mean to you? Think broad, uh, well, I said before I was a radical feminist, so I guess I've got to talk in that context. And I think the important thing for me about supporting, um, you know, female founders in the ecosystem generally is not being discriminatory in favor of a group. Um, you know, I see it as as making sure that, you know, all demographics get, you know, a fairer shot and equal opportunity. So if that makes sense, that's what I think. Well, I it, it's what I think even if I don't make sense. So anyway. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Doesn't matter. You've said it. It's yeah. been recorded. It's on this podcast. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, Adam, thank you for being our first male voice on Broadmic. Honored. Honored. Truly honored. Thank you for listening to Broadmic. We welcome your feedback. Find us on Facebook where you will have show notes and additional references for a deeper dive into today's topic. Subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode. Please review our podcast on iTunes, which will help other listeners discover Broadmic and grow the Broadmic community. Broadmic is produced by Christy Mirabel with editing by John Marshall Media. Our executive producer is Sarah Weinheimer. Think broad.